Well, welcome to a new, new series on love. And I, got, I just want to put all my cards on the table on the front end here with you. Uh, I've been preparing for this series for some time now, and there is no series that will probably make a preacher, preacher feel um, more like a terrible human being <laughs> than studying the subject of love, let alone God's perfect, beautiful, compelling, amazing love. And, uh, you know, compared to like a lot of people in your lives, like we're fairly good at loving, but when you have to compare your love to the perfect, righteous love of God, we fall utterly short. And so there have been so many times in this preparation where I just feel like um, I have been so broken. And at the same time, I find myself so grateful that despite my sin, despite my stupidity, despite my running from God, despite my struggles, God has put his unchanging forever love onto me and said, I loved you even though you were my enemy. I loved you even though I knew all the ridiculous, imbecilic things that you were going to do for the rest of your life and that there is nothing, Michael, that you can do that will make me stop loving you ever. Once you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you are mine and you are secure and there is nothing that can separate you, Michael, from the love of God in Jesus Christ. I needed to hear that in preparation for the sermon. And, and, and unlike most of you, A, you don't have to teach it. B, you don't have to teach it with your wife in the room, okay? Like, so there is going to be no pretense that I have mastered anything. I, I want you to hear me because this is important. I do not stand up here as a love master, okay? I know that sounds weird, but I can't think of another way to say it, okay? I stand up as the guy that God was like, preach on this because you stink at this. And when you compare your love to my love, it falls massively short. So figure this one out. My win here is, is just really, really simple. Uh, number one, if you are not a believer in Jesus Christ, maybe you're a cultural Christian, maybe you're visiting, maybe somebody dragged you here and you think Christians are crazy and weird and you don't want anything to do with it. I agree. We are crazy and we are weird. But I tell you what, Jesus is amazing. He loves you perfectly and passionately and flawlessly, and I cannot think of any more noble thing to do with your life than to give yourself fully to Jesus Christ. I can't think of anything. And so this whole world, it just has images and shadows of love, but the only real, true love that satisfies the deepest aspects of our soul is going to come from God. And until that happens, we will constantly search and fail utterly every single time, even though we have temporary moments of joy in our search. So I want to put before you, if you're not a believer, my win is that you would be so compelled by the love of God and you would be so convicted by your falling short of that love that you would throw yourself at the feet in the mercy of Jesus Christ. Number two is if you're a believer, I want to just make sure you know on the front end, I don't care how long you've been a Christian, I don't care how amazing you are, compared to God, you're not a good lover. <laughs> Somebody give me an amen on that one, right? You and I have a long way to go. My win is at the end of this series, you, you've taken a couple leaps forward in being somebody who loves God and loves the people in your life. That's my win. I do not expect at the end of this series, and all of you who engage in community groups are digging deeper into this, I do not expect that you are going to master love perfectly. But what I desire is that the Holy Spirit, as you encounter the perfect, righteous love of God, would transform you piece by piece slowly. Now, the title of this series, this sermon, is God is, fill in the blank, love. You know at the 9 a.m. nobody said a word? It was like, God is, and they're like, crickets. And I'm like, okay, Village Church, can you read? God is 
Love. Thank you. You're way cooler and better and more godly. So um, you can read. I'm so glad. Uh, God is love. This little phrase has been so abused and misused, and it has become the foundation for justifying ridiculous behavior in our culture. This is the phrase, God is love, has been used to justify any erotic expression of love so long as it is consenting and does not Im immediately or initially harm somebody else from their definition of harm. Like this is the new definition of the erotic love movement that's happening, that this is the pinnacle freedom of humanity. Do whatever you want with whomever you want because God is love. If they're going to base it into a religious foundation, God is love and he loves love. Wherever God finds love, God loves love. And automatically what we start learning is that the world's definition of love is falling just a little bit short of what God's definition of love is. God is love. Stop being so judgmental. This is the basis by which we are supposed to not tell people that if you don't trust in Jesus, you're going to go to hell. It's not loving. God is love. God would never send anybody to love. Adolf Hitler, Saddam Hussein, other people, would he send them to hell? Well, yeah, but they're different. Are they? God is love. Don't tell people they're going to go to hell. That's not loving. Okay, I'm stuck here. God is love. A God of love would never allow his children to suffer. Okay? Well, I and many of you in this room are God's children, and you've suffered. Some of you have been suffered more than most people can even understand. Does God still love? So some people reject God based on this notion. Well, the Bible says God's love, and if God were love, then he would. And apparently, whatever the Bible's definition of love does not quite match up to whatever is happening in pop culture. And so I want to share with you just personally a hard lesson that I've had to learn and uh, for some of you, this may sound a little weird or harsh at first, but this is for me. Um, for myself and most people I've worked with, almost everything I ever thought I knew about love was wrong. And I grew up in the church. I grew up uh, hearing God's word taught. I grew up in a Christian home. Right? My mom read me the Bible, taught me the Bible. I mean, and it's amazing. Almost everything that I knew about love was wrong. In fact, I had to unlearn, and I am still unlearning so many wrong things about love. So I want you to understand this. I, I have been trying to find this. I've been looking for it. I've been uh, paying special attention to what media I intake, um, not because I'm necessarily filtering more than usual, but I'm watching for something. I have been trying to find biblical concepts of love in media that is being pumped out to all of us. And I, I cannot find it. I just simply cannot find it. And so here's what I want you to understand. Every single day, every one of you in this room, you are breathing in and breathing out our culture and its values. It is being screamed at you in every single TV show, every magazine, every single um, web page you go to, every movie about love. They are screaming to you the world's definition of love and the world's understanding of love. And you're breathing it in and you're breathing it out and it's becoming a part of you. It's getting into your blood and into your veins and you don't even realize it. So from the time you grew up, you can be taught once or twice a week at church, but 100 or 200 times a day, we're intaking and receiving lies about what love is. I don't know how we can compete really right and this is why we need to go back to the gospel of God's love for us and remind ourselves about this all the time because we are being lied to and we're believing it and some of you will look at me and you'll say to me theologically I know what love is or I can defend it for you then why doesn't your husband or wife tell you or think that you're loving 
Right? Anybody? Right? You're like, I know what love is. Then why is it stuck here and it hasn't made it to your heart or out to your hands so that you actually love well? We're going to cover some of this. But here's what I need you to understand is that whether you like it or not, we have been affected and infected with the world's definition of love so powerfully that we don't even know it. I know love is sacrifice, but if you don't do for me what I want, then I'm not going to be happy and I will hold back my love from you. Sound like anyone in this room? Maybe most of the marriages in this room, let's be honest. Uh, there was a TV show on years ago, and a psychologist was on TV, and this girl calls up, and she says, uh, I keep dating these guys who are just really, just really bad, and one guy did this, and I, I didn't even see it coming, and then the next guy did this, and the next guy did this, and, and he's listening to this girl talk about all the wrong guys, you know, and she's not trying to pick the wrong guys, but she just always picks the wrong guys. He said something uh, I'll never forget. <laughs> he looks at her and he says, your picker is broken. And by picker, I don't mean like what you use to pick your nose. I mean, he's talking about your ability to choose is fundamentally broken. So I was so inspired by this. I did a whole four-week series in youth group uh, where I talked about your picker, your wanter, your thinker, and your feeler. And, uh, and at the end of the series, every kid in that room clearly understood something. My ability to choose has been so infected and affected by sin that I make ridiculous choices, and I'm not even trying to. Like, I think it's the right thing, and I end up making wrong choices. I have all of these feelings and emotions. Let's just talk about adolescence for a moment, right? They're just flooded with all of these emotions. You're like, why am I feeling all these things? Rage, you know? Like, ah, oh, happiness, I love you, I hate you, you know? And it's like, then you become an adult, and it's like, you're just big adolescence. It's crazy, you know? Amen? No, some, nobody, right? You just learn to cover it up a little bit, right? And your feelers are broken. You're like, I don't want to feel this. Why do I feel offended? I know they didn't even mean to offend me, but I feel offended. I'm just going to dig my heels in. I'm not going to speak to them. Why am I doing this? I don't even know. It's crazy. <laughs> You're wanting, why do I want this? I don't, I just don't, I know I don't want this, but it just so feels so good and I just need it, right? And then your thinker, it's like, why do I have these thoughts? Whoa, that is completely wrong. Oh my goodness, I had no idea. At every corner of my life, I'm like, that was dumb, that was dumb. You meet Jesus and here's what he does. He dismantles every part of you because sin has infected every part of us. And he needs to dismantle it and re-put it back together. Just the thinker for a moment, let's, let's go there. Uh, almost Every major Christian doctrine has been hard for me to accept, culturally speaking, right? Intuitively, as an American Western Christian, right, I have these values and these things that I think and that I believe, and then the gospel comes and says, people aren't good. What do you mean people aren't good? People are good. Most people are good. There's a couple bad seeds, and the Bible says, no, people aren't good. Salvation is not by works, it's by faith. No, 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 no. Every relationship in this world is deemed by works. What are you telling me? That God actually loves me whether I do anything or not? Which is why, by the way, every single version of religion on the planet apart from biblical Christianity requires works for you to be made right with God because intuitively into the human race because of sin, our thinker on this level is broken, right? Our thinker says, God requires my good works to outweigh my bad works, then I can get to heaven. Jesus is the only way to God? That's foolishness, culturally speaking. You talk to any kid who's grown up in this culture, there is God. We may not know he, who he, he, she, or it, or they are, but all religions are just the same way to get to God. You don't have to teach anyone that because culturally, it is inside of us. God chose you. No, 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 no. I chose God. Did you? Because you read the Bible and then it flips it on its head. Every great doctrine is hard 
and gut-wrenching and grinds our soul at first, and then God has to enter into our minds, dismantle us, and then re-put us back together through Scripture. Do you guys get that? Everything. I tell people all the time when doing doctrine, if it makes you angry at first, it's probably right. Seriously. Our thinkers, our feelers, our wonters, our pickers are so infected by sin so that when we approach this issue of love, here's what I promise you. I don't care how long you've been a Christian. God needs to dismantle you. And when he does, he promises to put you back together. <clears throat> and if you are 85 years old and you have been walking with Jesus for 84 of those 85 years, if that's even humanly possible, you have not even begun to understand the depths of God is love. So what I'm going to do, I have this impossible task in the next couple weeks, particularly with this God is love aspect, is to try to help you understand, feel, love who God really is. And then when that happens, we begin to learn to love. Now, I want to help you understand the world's definition of love very simply this. Whatever makes me happy makes me feel loved. If you make me happy, you love me. If you don't make me happy, this isn't going to work. Right? Love assumes one thing. <clears throat> you are at the center of the universe. Not your universe, the universe. Right? And the reason we get angry is, who told you you were the center of the universe? I'm the center of the universe. You make me happy. It's not your job. Right? It's like, we get mad when somebody else assumes that central place because it's ours. You didn't make me happy. You didn't do what I want. It's contingent love. It's worldly love. It's fleshly love. And, and, and if you just stop for a few moments and you watch this contingent love play itself out, what is the basis for which almost every relationship, married or unmarried, ends? You didn't make me happy. That's it. That's it. So you may not know this, but everyone in this room, you are because of sin, madly in love with somebody. Do you know who that is? Yourselves, right? Have you ever, this is a little illustration. If you ever uh, look at personality tasks, it could be disc profile, Myers-Biggs, whatever, you see these letters, right? And every time you get to yours, you're like, that's the best one. <laughs> you're like, I'm so glad I'm not that other one. <laughs> like, I'm ENTP. So glad I'm not INTP, because those guys, they're just crazy. They're all introverted and quiet. Like, I just wouldn't want to be that, you know? Like, just do a personality profile, and you will always think yours is the best. You know why? You're a narcissist, okay? It's a problem. There is a parade of love in media and our friends and our families and everywhere, and they are just calling it love, love. Love is everywhere. Love wins. Love this. Love that. Whatever. It is a parade of love. It is a parade of lust. It is a parade of selfishness, and it masquerades as love. And we have to be able to begin to discern where does love begin and lust end? What's the difference between love and lust? What's the difference between love and hate? Example, high school boy looks at his girlfriend and says, I love you, let's have sex. Is that love or hate? It's actually hate. He's stealing from her, taking something that is not hers. He's robbing her in the name of love. Why? Because for him, love is what makes me happy. And if you love me, you'll give me what makes me happy happy. You get that? So even what we masquerade as love, it's actually hate in disguise. That's all it is. It's hate in disguise. It's cruelty in disguise. It is robbing in disguise. And love fundamentally looks so, so, so utterly different. 
So who gets to define love? I have an idea. How about God? And so we look at some words in the Bible. I want to start with a couple of Hebrew words for you. And my favorite, I just love this one. It's probably because it's the newest one I've been studying, is Ahava. Now, there's a guttural way you're supposed to say that in the Hebrew language. I sound like an idiot when I do it. So Ahava is the Hebrew word for love, and it means this. It is a calculated choice. It's a love of the will. It is a love that chooses to set its affections on another person despite. So when you are loved with ahava, here's what it means. They're choosing to love you. It's not necessarily emotionally driven. It is a choice that they make toward you. And I think one of the greatest illustrations of ahava is you get a mom and a dad, and all of a sudden they find themselves pregnant. How that happens, we don't know, but they find themselves pregnant. There's little kids in the room. They find themselves pregnant, and they have this baby. What happens? The mom and the dad look at this child, and they express ahava. They make a choice. Now, here's the deal. This child's going to cost hundreds of thousands of dollars. This child's going to scream at them, make them lo- their life a living nightmare for years. This child's going to go through adolescence. This child's diapers are going to be annoying. You're going to get poop in your face. It's going to be crazy things that happen. And they still, you don't know, will this child rebel? Will this child be kind? Will this child be sweet? Will this child kill people? What will this child do? We have no idea. And we, with all the unknowns, we look at this kid and we say, Aha, ba, I am deciding to love you no matter what you do. And it's amazing. And you know why moms and dads are wired to do that, by the way? Do you know why? Like, because you're made in the image of God, and God is giving you this tiniest glimpse of who he is by that natural love that is poured out from a mom and a dad to a child. It is amazing. So every time you experience that, God put that hormonal experience in you so that you get this beautiful image and picture and glimpse of what God does for you. God looks at his children and says, Ahava, I don't care what you do. I don't care how far you run. You can be my enemy for all I care, and I have you. That's it. Now, those of you who are believers in Jesus, you do know the biblical truth that you were once an enemy. You were once running. You were once fleeing. And God still put his affections on you, and he said, I have you. And there is nothing that you can do to stop that. It's permanent. Personally, Really grateful for Ahava, because if it was an emotional choice rather than just a choice of the will, I must have ticked God off a long time ago, and he would have ran as far away from me as possible. Every mom and dad, can kids be annoying? You, of course, no, all your kids in the room are like, never. My kids are just perfect. They're just little angels, right? You know what? And everyone's going to grow up, and you're going to have a little kid. You're going to be like, I love you because of Ahava. <laughs> and that's good. It's right. Number two, has said. My mom's listening, by the way, because she listens to all these. I know, Mom, I annoyed you. Thank you for your ahava. Okay. Number two. And my dad. (laughs) Really annoyed my dad. (laughs) I'll just stop there. Has said, this is an unconditional promise. This is love that is based in a covenant or a promise. This is most beautifully pictured in marriage. A husband covenants himself to a wife. A wife covenants herself to a husband. And here's what they say. No matter what, I promise to give you my best till death do us part. And even though you may run from me and you may rebel and you may be mean and you may divorce me or whatever choices that the government allows you to do in our relationship here, I can't control all that. I will have said to you, but because before God and you, I made a promise. 
And every marriage, right, that expresses has said brings glory to God because you're re-imaging what God did for you. When God saved you, he promised to never leave you or forsake you. He brought you into a new covenant. He made a promise with you that he would give you his spirit and he would never leave you, never forsake you. Even when you run, even when you try to rebel against him, his promise to you is, you can't get away from me. I am yours. It is finished. I am with you forever. That is Hesed. And so when you get married, this is where you realize, I have to give my spouse a permanent love that God has given me. And any couple who understands an ounce of what God has done for them will give that kind of love to their spouse. But marriage is hard. You don't understand it. They don't make me happy. You're buying into the world's definition of love once you go there. Ahava says, I made this choice. Hesed says, I'm sticking to my choice because I made a promise and I made a covenant. Number three. Agape is the Greek word for love. Uh, it's one of a few Greek words which we'll see, but uh, the Greek language does not necessarily have words for ahava and hesed. Um, they're just different kinds of words. And so and when I look at this, one of the things I think is that agape is sort of the best of ahava and hesed in one word. It's the Bible, the New Testament's way of taking this, all these ideas about God's love and encapsulating them in one word. And at the best, easiest, simplest definition, it goes like this. Agape is this, sacrificial love despite. Sacrificial love despite. And if you're going to love with this kind of love, it comes at a cost. It comes at a massive cost. Because you cannot control what your kids or what your spouse or what your friends do. And Ahava walks into these circumstances and says, I'm going to die. I'm going to sacrifice. And in this covenant that we've made with each other, I am admitting that you have high capacity to wound me on deeper levels than any other human being has the possibility to wound me. And agape means this, I will give whatever I can. I will give you my best. I will sacrifice anything for your benefit because that is what God has done for me. It's interesting in this culture, we celebrate now, just watch, just watch this theme, we celebrate now erotic love and we disparage agape love. You can't believe you stuck with him. Can't believe you stuck with her. You know what they did to you? And the Christian steps back and says, I made a promise to Ahava Hasid and Agape. Now, I want to transition. Because there are two aspects of this. You have the foundations of real divine love, okay? And then what you have are the benefits. Of love. Now, we in English, we have one word, love. So we're like, I love this, I love that. I get that. But if we nuance the word, we have foundational love, and then we have benefits of love. And so you look at the benefits of love, and they're awesome. I want it. Philia, Philadelphia, city of brotherly love. This is friendship bond, a friendship love. I mean, everybody wants a friendship love, but a friendship love without agape is temporary. We have a lot of friends, but here's the deal. Many of our friends in life will throw us under the bus if we don't perform for them, meet their expectations, or do the right things, or we don't make certain mistakes, right? You get that? Conditional, contingent, friendship, love. And, and philia, based in agape, which is, I will forgive you no matter what. I will pursue you, my friend, no matter what, is a deeper sense of love than what anything this world has to offer. You look at most friendships, especially adult friendships, okay, which are just high school and junior high friendships, gone amok with, like, you're not going to school every day, so you don't see it as much, right? 
They are not based in any promise, any sense of commitment. They are conditional, and it's nauseating, and it is frustrating, and it is hurtful, and then there's gossip, and then there's slant. You get the point. You know the cycle. And yet God's love looks fundamentally different because it's based in something deeper. And then number two, we have a word. It's only actually used once in uh, the New Testament, storge. This is familial love. This is a deeper sense of love. You know those people in your life where they look at you and they're like, you're not friends, you're family. It's like a different level of bond. It's what a husband and a wife and a nuclear family unit or a mom and her dad or stepson and step, whatever it is, like whatever these weird nuances that happen in marriage, when we're familial, like we stick together and I will be more loyal to my family probably than to my friends if the two are tested, right? And so it's a familial love. It's storge, it's deep, right? Um, but what happens when storge isn't rooted in, in, in agape? It's conditional. You didn't raise me the way I wanted you to. You didn't do this for me. I'm out of here. I'm done with you. Many of you have known this, experienced this, done this. And that's hard. But storge, based in something deeper, is an amazing benefit. It's a, it's a familial bond and affection an emotional experience that happens that is deeper than even just a filia friendship love. And then there's number three, which is eros. This is erotic, sexual love, reserved and bound for the institution of marriage only. And that's it. So here's what happens. I'm 17 years old, I see this guy, this girl, and I want to eros. Why? Because my wanter is broken, <laughs> okay? But it feels right. And then I justify it. My thinker is broken, okay? And then I pursue this person, and it feels good, why? Because my feeler is broken, right? And then I actually make the choice. My picker is broken. Do you see this? Like at every corner of the process that somebody goes through this, all they're doing is experiencing the effects of their sin. It's broken, and they haven't let Jesus rearrange these things yet. And so here's what the world wants. The world wants the benefits of love without the foundations of love. And you know what that means? Absolute emotional devastation. And for some reason, dudes are wired in such a way that we can do that and, and cut off our emotions just a little bit more cleanly, right? Um, but it doesn't change the fact that we are not made in God's image to do that. And on a deeper level, with women who go through this, generally speaking, this is devastating when they think that I will get a hava and a sed and agape if I just give them eros. And if I give them eros, then maybe I'll get philia out of it, right? Maybe. And at the end of the day, here's what happens. When you invert these things, the whole relationship is screwed up. It is totally messed up. It is conditional almost every single time. And God walks in and says, I understand everything in you wants eros. I made you to do that. You're made in my image. This is a part sexuality and all this stuff. It is a part of the image of God that I put inside of you. It is good, but hear me, it will destroy you out of its right context. It will just destroy you. And that is the way God has wired it. And so we, as old Christians, we look at our high school students and say, you know, don't have sex until you're married. Hold back the word love because it's kind of a thick word, especially like the way you're using it. You're saying, I lust you, not I love you. And, and just like pause this, this thing about, you know, you're so old and irrelevant. No, been there, done that, seen it, counseled through it, watched the devastation, and maybe we're onto something. Just Maybe. And yet, culture screams at every corner of our children's lives and says, you deserve eros. God is love. God wants you to be happy. God would never say no to your desires. God wants you to fully embellish in these things. God is love. God loves love wherever he finds it. And love is now lust. So we take these, these things as Christians, and man, if I could just get every single Christian to base their relationship on the foundations 
and let the benefits naturally come in the right season and right context, people would respect younger people a whole lot more. A whole lot more. And if I could get our young people, who, or maybe you're old and you're not married, whatever, um, to realize that eros without hesed, without that marital foundation, is devastating, not glorifying to God and his worldly love and not God's love, oh my goodness, we could just, we could change so many, it would be amazing. And more life would be given to us than we could possibly realize. Now we're going to look at one verse. We're not going to go in your notes through all the stuff. We're going to come over back to the last three points next week. I want to look at one verse with you and then we'll close. Where does love come from? 1 John 4, 7. He starts off, he says, beloved. Love this. This is agape tas. This is the root of agape. Here's what he says. Christians, uh, ones who have been sacrificially, beautifully, compellingly, magnificently, perfectly, justly loved by your God. You, beloved. So that's, this is the context. He's not just talking to the whole human race because the whole human race is not beloved in the way that Christians are. Listen, Christians, beloved. Let us love one another. Of course, you're like, yeah, let's love one another. It sounds good. Everybody loves love, right? For love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. From where does all agape love come from? Answer? God. As you follow the flow of the next few verses, here's what you're going to find. This is going to be weird for some of you, but just go with it here. There is no divine love that has not been first initiated by God. There is no love anywhere in this world. I don't care where you see it, how you experience it, how emotional the movie makes you feel, right? There is no love anywhere that God will look and say, love, unless it is originated with him and from him and hear this, it is being expressed through a Christian. What I hope you understand. Love is from God. And those who are Christians, where does God dwell? In you. The Holy Spirit is fully God. And when the Holy Spirit dwells in you, he can now love through you. If you don't have the Holy Spirit, and this is really one of the main points of the whole um, chapter, 1 John chapter 4, is if you don't have God's Spirit, if God isn't in you, you have no capacity to love with any sense of divine love. And you will say to me, that's so dumb. All my friends, they tell me that I'm loving and that I'm nice and that I'm kind. I get it. Horizontally, when you compare yourself to people in your life, you are probably more loving than most of them. But they are not the standard nor the definition of love. God is the standard and definition of love. And when you look at your love, if you're going to rightly evaluate your love, and then you're going to look at God's love and say, I'm good at loving, you don't understand God's love. And you have way overestimated your ability to love well. And I want you to catch this. There is no love that God calls love unless it originates from him inside of a Christian and outward. None. There is human love. Don't get me wrong. There is eros and there is philia. There is, there is storge. Um, those are the benefits of love. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about agape love. There are 
masquerades of it. There are imitations of it, right? But if it doesn't originate with God, is it love? And the text says, no. And again, the text will go on to make sure you know that you know that Christians are uniquely given this profound capacity to love with an agape love because the Holy Spirit of God is inside of you. Now, this text also assumes something. It assumes that you know who God is. And there's a very important part of this that I just need to dig in with you. And that God is Trinity, which means God is one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And when he says God is love, he just doesn't like think about God as one singular person sitting in heaven with gray hair. Here's what he means by God is love. He means that God lives in perfect harmony and love with himself, the Father to the Son, the Son to the Father, the Father to the Spirit, the Spirit to the Father, Jesus to the Spirit, the Spirit to Jesus, every aspect of the Trinity, if you could see it, you would literally be blown away and say, I could never even have imagined a more perfect, compelling, amazing community of agape love. Like This might be the most beautiful experience that any human being could ever possibly have to watch the loving community of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit with one another. And this love, the Father sends the Holy Spirit and he sends them to believers and we are filled with this love. And this same love that is inside the Father, the Son, and the Spirit flows through the Holy Spirit through Christians. That's why having the Holy Spirit is so essential, one of many reasons, because until God gives you the Holy Spirit and that love that originates in the Holy Spirit comes out of you, you can only have love by standards that the world calls love, but it is not what God calls love. It is not. So we step back, and I want to give you an illustration to just close this for you guys. I want you to imagine, I want you to imagine that there's a person up here, and this person is filled with Satan. The spirit of Satan has gone into this person and consumed them. What would you expect that person would start doing? Do you think they would grow in their love and their kindness, their compassion and their mercy? Do you think they would just forgive and they would give away all their money to the poor? I mean, what do you think this person would do? Isn't it fair to say that if you saw someone filled with the spirit of the devil himself, that they would get progressively meaner and worse and nasty and unloving and hate-filled and disgraceful and disobedient and rebellious? Wouldn't you expect that? Like, that's, that's what I would expect. And, and here's, here's what the text is trying to get across to us. How much more is the person who is filled with the Holy Spirit and that Holy Spirit in them is fully love? How much more would you expect that for the Christian, we would grow in our lives more and more and more and more into agape love, right? So I'm looking at you guys, and here's what I'm saying. I see a bunch of people, myself included, and we stink at love and well. But here's what I know. If God's spirit is in you, he will begin to dismantle you more and more and more. And my prayer is that even through this series that he fast forwards this process a little bit by intentionally digging into God's word, going into your community groups and unraveling what this looks like. My prayer is that maybe for some of us, there's parts of us that could be fast forwarded because we're intentionally praying about it and focusing on it. But if you don't love, you don't know God. And not just any kind of love, agape love. And if you don't get love, you definitely don't get God. And so some of you are wondering, how do I know 
if I am loving. The greatest measurement of whether or not you have any ounce of agape love in you is your family. <laughs> You're all going to hate me on this one. <laughs> it's your family. We, we, we fake it with everybody else, right? I mean, let's be honest. You can't get away from your family. Your spouse, your kids. Now, the question is not, do I love perfectly? When you see me, do you see Jesus? Because the answer is, no, sometimes when I see you, I don't see Jesus at all, right? That's not the question. Here's, here's the question. Do you see sparks of agape love in me? Like, do you see moments where truly, simply for your benefit, I sacrifice and give my best? Like, I know I don't do it all the time. I know it might be like 0.5%, okay? Let's just be generous. But do you see that in me growing? If they can look at you and say, I see a spark, that's where it starts. That's, how, that's where you can begin to know, okay, there's something inside of me that's fundamentally different, that's fundamentally divine, right? Um, some of us, you've never trusted in Jesus. And you cannot love in a way that makes God, we'll just say, happy until you have the Holy Spirit in you. And when the Holy Spirit is in you, that's when God's love, divine love, actually begins to dwell in you and now can come out of you. And I'm not saying you're a terrible person compared to the rest of the world. I'm sure you're amazing. I'm sure you're awesome. I'm sure you're better than most people. But most people aren't our standard. And so when I step and I look at God, I'm like, I want to be not better than most people, more like Jesus, who is the manifestation of love. So what I want to do is I want to pray. I want to ask the band to come up. We're going to close, and we are going to worship. Because some of you, you realize your immense frailty at loving well. And if you have any conviction of sin in you in any way, shape, or form, can I just tell you one of the greatest responses you can possibly have is to worship God because he declares over every one of his children, I ahava you, I hesed you, and I agape you, no matter what you do and no matter how much you struggle with love. So let's pray together. God, I am... So grateful that you love me because um, my love is so small and weak and compared to yours. God, I want to run from love. I feel like at times I'm allergic to love. It's just this weird thing in my flesh. But Lord, I know that I want to love more like Jesus loves. So God, I don't want to be the guy who gets up and preaches and acts like he has it all together and look at me. I really want to be personally transformed by your Holy Spirit. And I want your love, the Trinitarian love, this perfect, beautiful, amazing love to come out of me slowly, quickly, whatever you, just do something in me that helps me to love more with this divine love. And I confess to you my worldly love and my contingent love. And and there are just so many illustrations in my brain right now of how worldly and cultural my love truly is. So God, I just want to submit myself to you and say, would you dismantle me? And now, Lord, out of that, I want to be able to ask for my brothers and sisters, would you dismantle them? Would you show them what it means to truly love? Would you start taking apart these wrong ways of feeling and thinking and choosing and picking and wanting about love that we've just bought into, hook, line, and sinker? Would you begin to reform us and shape us into the image of Jesus Christ? And God, I pray until the day I die, you would not stop, even though my flesh wants you to stop because it's hard. Would you do in us what we cannot do? Would you make us loving? We pray this 
in Jesus' name who died for our sins and the greatest expression of love ever seen in all of history. And all God's people said, amen.